riding the rocket on your first time is amazing, but there's nothing that you, I can't even put words to effect when, when you open the door and just your glass visor and, and you're looking down at earth below you and, uh, and you're outside and you know that there's been a great deal of effort to get you to this point and, and you're part of a team that's repairing something or installing something new but yet you're in this crazy, crazy location that it doesn't make any sense to your brain. Like, why are you there? This is not the place you should be. So that first moment of your first spacewalk. Welcome to the Passion Struck Podcast. My name is John Miles, a former combat veteran and multi-industry CEO turned entrepreneur and human performance expert. Each week we showcase an inspirational person or message that helps you unlock your hidden potential and unleash your creativity and leadership abilities. Thank you for joining us today on the show and let's get igniting. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Passion Struck Podcast. Astronaut, Naval Academy, distinguished graduate, Captain Wendy Lawrence said this quote when I asked her what was the dynamic force that propelled her to be an astronaut. She said, for me, I was 10. I had just turned 10 in July of 1969. And like millions of people around the world, my mother put me in front of a TV so I could watch. That is the day I became possessed with a dream. To me, that is the best way to describe it. As I got older from that day forward, when I thought about what I really, really want to do, I came to the same conclusion. I want to be an astronaut and I want to be in space. And I picked that quote on purpose because we have a very special guest today, uh, my Naval Academy classmate, Navy SEAL, and astronaut, Captain Chris Cassidy. And for me, this is a very special interview, not only because he's my classmate, but because I was able to speak to him virtually a year ago today as he was preparing to launch off in the Soyuz capsule in Kazakhstan, where he was going to become the commander of the ISS. And for me, being able to follow up a year later and hear about those experiences during his six months in space and many more I think is going to make just for an amazing episode today. And if you are not familiar with Chris, let me tell you a little bit more about him. Navy Captain Christopher J. Cassidy was selected as an astronaut by NASA in 2004 and is a veteran of three space flights, STS-127, Expedition 35, and most recently served as the commander on the International Space Station for Expedition 63. During that shuttle mission, STS-127, Cassidy served as mission specialist and was the 500th person in history flying space. This mission delivered the Japanese Experiment Module Explosed Facility in the Experiment Logistics Module Exposed Section to the station. Expedition 35, Cassidy and the European Space Agency astronaut Luca Parmatano had their unplanned spacewalk to replace a pump controller box cut short when Parmitano had cooling water leak into his helmet. And then Cassidy became NASA's 14th chief astronaut in July 2015, where he was responsible for flight assignments, mission preparation, and on-orbit support of U.S. crews, as well as organizing astronaut office support for future launch vehicles. Cassidy, a U.S. Navy SEAL, has been deployed twice to the Mediterranean and twice to Afghanistan. He is the recipient of two Bronze Stars with Combat B and Presidential Unit Citation for leading a nine-day operation on the Afghanistan-Pakistani border. Chris received a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1993 a Master's of Science in Ocean Engineering from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 2000, and an honorary PhD from Tucson University up in Maine in 2015. And I am just ecstatic to have Chris on today, and I know this is a show for all the listeners you are not gonna wanna miss. Welcome to the Passion Struck Podcast. Today, I am so excited to have a long-term friend and Naval Academy classmate and Naval Academy prep school classmate of mine, Chris Cassidy. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, John. It's so cool to be with you after all, all these years. And ironically, my stepson is at NAPS right now and will start his plebe year this summer. So it, it makes me reflect back to when we were in his shoes 
You know, it doesn't seem that long ago, does it? No. And in, in fact, it, it seems like yesterday that Gunny Zachary was driving us through clock in the morning, uh, PT drills, doesn't it? Oh my God. Yeah. Bad memories. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, as I was preparing for the show, I actually reached out to our whole class and asked them for things they wanted to talk about. And the experience of Gunny Zach must have come up about 10 times in that thread. So I think he left an impression on all of us. That he certainly did. <laughs> well, well, you and I had a similar starting point. We're both from towns named York, me, York, Pennsylvania, you, York, Maine. And I think, you know, for the listeners out there, you and I had a chance to do an interview. It, it was kind of, I sent you questions and you sent me audiograms back at that time because it was actually almost to the day a year ago and you were about two weeks out from blasting off from Kazakhstan. And in that, one of the things I was in the process of writing my book and the chapter was on perspective. So our interview was about different perspectives that uh, we faced. And I think you and I both ended up going to NAPS for similar reasons. I went there on an athletic scholarship, uh, whereas you did not. But I think for both of us, it, it was a much needed year in our life that had profound impacts in the way we approached the Naval Academy and, and beyond. And so I thought maybe for the listeners out there, um, sometimes you look at something like having to go to an extra year of school as a negative, but I think both of us found it to be a, a very big positive in our lives. And I, I wanted you to unpack that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. There's a super cool story about how I ended up at NAPS, and I'll share that in a second. But when I found found out that I was going to the prep school, I had this kind of moment of after it all settled and I kind of was putting things in perspective. My my high school classmates were moving on to college. I had a a little bit of a oh man, I'm going to be a year behind my friends and. I don't feel like I need to go to prep school. Why can't, why am I not good enough to have gotten right in directly? And, you know, sort of had a uh, jumbled up bunch of feelings inside me. Little did I know it was going to be the single greatest thing I really believe uh, for, for me. And probably just like you're getting at, I mean, there's a huge difference in maturity between an 18 year old and a 19 year old. And then you're surrounded by other folks that are there just like you. And some members, some of our classmates were prior enlisted. So they were a little bit older than us even. And, and just kind of soaking up that maturity, an extra year of pay, learning the military system and, and having an extra year of the same curriculum that you get in your plebe year. All of that just made us, all of whatever we were, 200 or so of us, just so much more prepared to go into that freshman year. And it allowed me anyways, to be really successful academically and feel like it, none of it was a stress in that plebe year. And, and I think it just put me on such a positive trajectory. If you want, I can go into the story about how I ended up at NAPS. It's because it's in my sure. mind, it's one of the most pivotal moments in my life uh, for the reason I just kind of talked about, about NAPS. But for those listeners that aren't aware with about the admission process to a service academy, you have to apply both to the school itself and to a congressional nomination. And I didn't have any mentors in the process. There wasn't the blue and gold officer who kind of guides you through the, the system at that point, or at least I didn't know of them. So I was navigating it on my own, and, and I, I learned that you had to do this congressional application, so I did that. I went for the interview at the congressional staff with the congressional staff uh, and they said, okay, good job. We got it from here. And I, I said, oh, that's it. I don't have to do anything else. And they, no, son, we got it. You, you did a great job and we got it from here. We'll get back to you. So this was this, this fall of my senior year. You fast forward now to the spring of my senior year and uh, everybody's getting the letters that you got into college or not. And I hadn't gotten a single thing from the Naval Academy. So I called them up. Uh, the admissions office and the woman asked my name, asked my social security number. I could hear her going through her files, nothing. She said, we don't even have you in our system. And this is like April or late March of, my, of our senior year in high school. Just so happens my friend, my friend's dad, we were in Maine, to, was taking a business trip to Washington DC the next week. And, and I had planned to go with my friend and his dad to just enjoy 
BC on our spring break. And so I, one of those days I drove over to the academy, went to the admissions office and the, the same woman at the front desk said, oh, you're from Maine? Down the hall on the right, second door, Captain Malillo, he's the person for New England, go see him. So I walked down the hall and, and enter, and there he is, like the stereotypical Marine Corps uh, captain. Not a wrinkle to be seen, you can see your reflection in his shoes, perfect haircut, square jaw, and he's just looking at me as I'm telling my story, thinking, is this guy, I could tell, even my 18-year-old self, I could tell this guy was thinking, is this kid a total goofball who didn't get his act together? in time or is it really something i should give him some some uh, attention to he didn't give me any feedback in the room and, and he just said okay i understand i'll get back to you drive back to maine and the next the next week i get a phone call from him and while i'm in school and he says hey cassidy i got good news i can get you into the prep school but you need to tell me on the phone right now if you want to go and i was like didn't hesitate yes sir thank you very much I, i'd like to go and that alone allowed me to go to prep school, which as I just described previously, set me up for success at the Naval Academy, which enabled me to select the SEAL teams. And then in the SEAL teams, I uh, learned about Bill Shepard to become an astronaut. And that motivated me to become, to try to become an astronaut. And now here I am having uh, had a 17 year career at NASA. So for, if it wasn't for Captain Malillo having the belief in me and giving me the opportunity just to go there, none of that would have happened. So it's one, I think it's the most pivotal moment in my life. I was just an 18-year-old, didn't know any better. Well, sim similar to you, my dream is, since I was a young kid was to go to the University of Michigan. My parents went there, grandparents, everyone. And, I, and then I got an athletic scholarship. And the Naval Academy really wasn't on my radar because when I was a young kid, York wasn't that far from Annapolis, and we would take all our relatives there. And so I, as a young kid, saw all these uh, plebes um, and underclassmen getting screamed at. I'm like, why would I do that? But then Coach um, Al, Coach Al, the cross-country coach, uh, Ken Cantano, I think was his name, ended up starting to recruit me. And the more they talked about me, talked to it with me, the more I started getting excited. And I, you know, I'd always had a fashion fascination for leadership. And I thought, you know, what better place to learn about leadership and get experiences. So, you know, for me, it, it was really a, not the initial path I was going to take. So very similar to you, but I think for me, it, it paved the way to making the academy much easier. And, you know, luckily my plebe year roommate was Sal uh, Sa Sama. I don't know if you remember him from NAPS, but uh, was a fire enlisted Marine. And yeah. so having someone like that for the first semester, he ended up leaving second semester but, you know, he was so locked away. It just, that influence as well just taught me so much. So you then get to the, the Naval Academy and, and you were a math major. Um, what were some of the highlights for you of that experience? Because, you know, the motto for a lot of people is it's a terrible place to be, a great place to be from. But I found some great moments when I was there and especially the bonds that you build with your classmates. You know, it's, it's funny, John, I, I really liked my whole four years there. I never really felt like, oh, this is a miserable place. Even plebe, plebe summer is kind of a drag, as you know, but with our experience at, at NAPS, I kind of knew that it would just end eventually. And that was a theme I, that helped me through SEAL training as well, is, is like those tough times, they eventually end. Plebe summer, hell week, whatever, a crazy time at work or, or sickness, you can get through it. But back to your question, what some memories that I really think back on and in trying to answer that, it's not so much the exact things that we did as the people that I did them with. Like probably just like you, some of my best friends today are those, the, the guys from my, my company that I bonded with and then Napsters uh, as well. Uh, and I think it's because when you're young like that and in your, in your formative years, when you're collectively going through tough times together, or I like to call it type two fun, like type one fun is fun when it's happening and type two fun, it's, it's when you look back on it, it was, has funny, it's, there's some funny stories, but while you're living it, it wasn't so fun. But really the, the, the friendships and the bonds that, that we formed at that time frame, you know, like just staying up late cramming for a final or summer cruises, I thought I, those were awesome. I loved the summer cruises. So. I don't know. Uh, what were yours? What were some of your 
favorite times? Well, some of them were, were the camaraderie with your, your company mates, for sure, but also your teammates um, in the sports you, you played. So for me, the rugby members especially um, had a profound impact on me. And, and I remember I, we both got a chance to go back for our 25th reunions. And it so happened that almost the entire rugby uh, squad was there. And so being able to see all of them uh, again and it feeling like it, it was 25 years ago and not uh, not being uh, captains and colonels and now generals and admirals uh, in the service. So I thought those were some, but I also thought that the exposure that we got, not only being able to see the real world during the, the summers, but also the exposure to some of the amazing leaders that that we had and who gave us forestall lectures or other things where you really could learn from them what passion and drive really meant and how some of them like Admiral Stockdale, Admiral Lawrence, others had to overcome John McCain, who did our commencement, had to overcome such brutal situations. And yet similar to your type two fun, how they looked back upon some of the worst circumstances in their lives as some of the most defining. And so for me, being a young kid and being able to to hear those experiences and to get exposed to leadership like that, to me, was paramount in where I am today. Which leads me to a question for you. If you remember the Forrestal lectures and you were to give one today, what message would you deliver to the Brigade of Midshipmen? Oh, wow. That's a good question. You know, there's a thing that I've learned in, in both my time in the SEAL teams as well as at NASA. There's nothing more important than what you're doing right now. And by that, I mean in when you're on a SEAL mission or military operation, you could have chaos in your personal life or things, you know, you could be irritated at your buddy in the squadron or in your platoon, but, but when you bring it together and you're actually conducting the operation, all of that has to be go out. You have to focus and be paying attention to the very specific thing you're trying to accomplish. Same thing in my space career. Uh, when you're in a cockpit or you're on the board of the space station and you get distracted by something else, you could very easily flip the wrong switch or do an action that can harm the vehicle or worst case, put people's uh, health and safety at risk. And it applies, I've learned that it's not just an operational concept, it applies in, in life too. So many times you see people buried on their phone and in a conversation and you kind of get a feeling like, oh, they're not really paying attention to me. And, and so I, I strive to do that. And occasionally I'll catch myself in a um, conversation with my wife if, if I'm distracted and realize, oh, I'm not paying 100% of attention. That means I'm not giving her or whoever you're talking to 100% and you're not giving the other tasks that you're trying to do at the same time 100%. So that's one of the things that, that I try hard to reiterate in, in, uh, from my lessons learned in the military and at NASA is the thing that you're doing right now, like for me, I'm talking to you on this podcast, it's the most important thing I'm doing at this moment. Uh, you know, there could be a crisis that happens, which no offense to you, John, but would elevate me to go pay attention to the crisis. But that's all what you do in operational environment too. Like you, you're, you got to deal with the alligator that's closest to the boat and, and you're constantly making prioritization decisions on what you got to do immediately and what you can push off and deal with later. But that's probably the message. I'd probably, if I was giving a four-cell lecture, I'd give a few examples, some personal stories where I learned this, but that's the theme I would go with. So I think that's a, a, a great topic. I just did a podcast a couple weeks ago, and I, I called it The Importance of Showing Up. And I used, of all people, uh, Matthew McConaughey as my example, because at the time, my son was having a really rough time in middle school. We had just moved to Austin, and he just wasn't fitting in, and it was a, a huge school he was in. And, and uh, we started, we always took him to church, but we were trying to get him excited to go to church and meet new friends. And, you know, at a point where I don't think he wanted to go at all, um, all of a sudden Matthew McConaughey started showing up every single week, sat a row in front of us, didn't just go. go. I mean, he, he and his family totally showed up. He participated. And I think watching him and his enthusiasm for, you know, that moment and being present with his kids really made a profound impact on my son. And for me, 
it showed me a completely different side of of him from you know what I had heard um, about him as a person and you know so I think you're right so many times today you're in a restaurant and everywhere you look you know half the tables three quarters of the table the other person's on the phone and I I say this concept of why are you so focused on what appears to be urgent as opposed to what is important and I think your point about whatever you're engulfed in at your particular moment should be the most important thing for occupying your time so you I think that's a great point. So for those who don't understand the way that the Academy does service selections, and I think it's changed a bit now, they learn earlier than you and I did. But uh, I remember being interested in potentially becoming a SEAL. And I remember that process for making that decision started a couple of years um, earlier. I don't know if you remember Rich Rodriguez used to be part of the football team. I remember doing workouts with him and those who were interested were starting to to get a feel for it. But when did you get that urge inside of you? Because at the time you and I went there, there were very limited billets, I think 10, 10 or less. It was probably youngster year, sophomore year, when it kind of dawned on me that service selection, plebe year, even though I knew service selection was a concept, it wasn't something that felt that I had to deal with uh, anytime soon. But starting sophomore year, I remember oh, there's prerequisites and lead up to these things. You can't just delay the decision till all of a sudden you're a senior. And I, I, I was intrigued by, by SEAL teams. It was quite different then. The SEAL teams weren't in the news. There wasn't a million books in Barnes & Noble about, written by SEALs. So, so it wasn't something uh, I readily knew about. But in talking to, we had uh, Matt Hickey was a SEAL officer on staff, uh, and there was a chief guy named Chief Black. And and just seeing them around and going to PT sessions, it got me a, a little incrementally more and more enthused. And uh, there was a couple of my company mates, uh, Brad Gresham and Mike Pierce. We all worked out together. And, and I think collectively we spurred on each other's motivation. Uh, and so, so that was when it really started. And I, I put some thought into, okay, in order to make it a reality that I can select it, I must, I need to do this mini buds thing and do a summer, you know, which is a summer, summer cruise type uh, event in the, before your senior year. And so, so I just kind of put it all in place about what I needed to do to stay competitive for the process. Okay. So if there was one thing you learned as a midshipman, what would you say it's been in propelling your career now to be a SEAL and, you know, an astronaut? That's a good question also. I, I think probably that the you know a little bit i learned this in in high school sports and that's the the cohesiveness that you get from a team the camaraderie and the energy that you boost each other up but it, it really got hammered home uh in my time at, at the academy with your company you have different groups of friends right maybe you're the same way you've got your company then you've got people that were in your major together and then maybe you had a really fun summer cruise or something with a group of people and you stay connected with them. And, and so, and then I played company sports. I wasn't on a, a varsity team, but I met you get, you know, obviously for you, cross country or rugby is another source of, of that, that camaraderie. And so the lesson I learned that was really hammered home at the academy is, is how much energy you can give each other when you're in it together. Okay. Well, I think that definitely would apply to your experience going through BUDS. I remember in our last discussion, you kind of told me that one of the most important things you found about being at BUDS was that it's kind of this, you know, trying times and, and there's this reality that you've got to get over doubting yourself. And those two things really stuck stuck with me because having not been to BUDS, but knowing many people who have, I mean, it, it is probably one of the most trying times at that point that you had ever experienced. So how do you get through periods like that where, you know, you're faced with things or for you when you're in that combat situation in Afghanistan, how do you create that mindset that these trying times are going to end? Yeah, for me, it was figuring out that your, your time horizon of, of the future is like an elastic band, right? Like the more available bandwidth you have, you can have that rubber band stretch out further and further and you can look for deeper ahead of you. But when you get really, really in the thick of it, in the buds analogy is you're just buried in sand and you're 
in your hundredth push up and the instructors are yelling at you, your time horizon shrinks kind of just in front of you. And, and that's where the, like you said, trying times end. If you're in that heat of the battle and it's really, really, you're really, really struggling, it's too much to even think about getting to lunch. You just have to get to the next set of 10 push-ups. And so that's where I realized, like, in the beginning of, of BUDS, it's overwhelming to think about the end. It's even overwhelming to think about, oh, I just get to the end of the first phase. You have to break it up into much smaller chunks. And the ability to, like a rubber band, stretch this time horizon until, you know, the, the sort of little mini milestone, John milestone, <laughs> Uh, is very, very helpful. Uh, in general, I, I broke it down into chunks of, of meals, get to lunch, get to dinner, you know, et, et cetera. But, but you need to be able to make that smaller increments if you needed to. Well, and one of the other things you mentioned was that during BUDS, person tells you that they didn't think about quitting. They're probably lying to you because almost everyone goes through that. And you told me the story that, you know, most people, if they haven't been to California, think that the water is going to be like it is on the East Coast. And it definitely is not. It's, it's freezing cold and especially the conditions they put you guys through. And I remember you telling me the story that you, you were cold, you were uncomfortable, but one of your classmates at BUDS was from Thailand and that while you were uncomfortable, he was just so uncomfortable, you know, it took every, I, I guess, part of his anatomy to keep pushing through and seeing things like that. How did that change your outlook and, and your desire right. to, to stay, stay with the program? Right, exactly. That no matter how miserable you think you have it, somebody else somewhere has it a little worse and then there's certainly some that also means somebody else somewhere has it a little better than you and being able to be the person that gives support and gives energy at the same time where you can take it from from others is something i learned in, in seal training and yeah the officer from thailand he was always cold and that's all i needed was whenever i thought i was cold and unhappy i just look over at him and he's like shaking like crazy uh i thought okay well He's still here. I can be still here. And I, I, I don't think that if you ask most of the people who went through, who succeeded going through BUDS, I don't think all, all of us were always, always thought about quitting. And I think it just means that any one person, there was probably a fleeting, at the minimum, a fleeting moment where they were really, really hating life and thought, what am I doing here? Maybe they didn't think about quitting, but it really start to self-doubt like, why am I here? And the, the period of time where that goes through your mind, uh, I think is directly related, to, relatable to how your support, your buddies around you get you through it. That's uh, a great analogy. And, you know, especially as you then went into the, the teams and got your trident, the special forces, I think, has a different version of what that squad or team makes and maybe other portions of the military. So in whether you're a Green Beret, Force Recon, SEAL, I think for you that inner platoon squad of people you're deploying with takes on a completely different meaning. Can you talk about that a little bit and how it's different than maybe if you were in, in the infantry as opposed to being in a special forces team? Yeah, I mean, all I know is my experience, which is, was 100% in the SEAL teams, but I I will tell you that this bond you form with your platoon, which whatever the small unit element is, in SEAL teams we call it a platoon, about 20 people, and you're, you're together for two years and you've got a, a junior officer leading it, a senior enlisted person working hand-in-hand -hand with that junior officer and then a, fill out the rest of the group with, uh, with the guys, and you just get really close and understand how each other operate and almost without communicating after the course of a two-year workup or getting ready for a six-month deployment by the time that process is over and you're you're out on deployment and ready to do your operational work you almost don't need to communicate verbally with each other you just instinctively know who's flowing where who's picking up which task who's going to take care of x y or z and what i really liked about it was that peer leadership was what drove it as as a seal platoon commander it was very rare almost never did i ever have to tell somebody hey you didn't do your job the other 
peers of those of the folks in the platoon just kind of pushed everyone to give their best and to perform their best for Adam. And even to this day, what I fear most is letting down my teammates. And, uh, and I think that was something that really was instilled in me in my first, in my SEAL platoons. Did you know that Forbes magazine recently cited that 70% of individuals who do personal development, masterminds, and one-on-one -on -one coaching benefited from better work performance increased communication skills and overall better relationships. And we at PassionStruck are obsessed with self-development, coaching, and mentorship. That is why we've created a free resource to help you unlock your hidden potential. Because people doing great things in business and life are just like you, only they've had a coach along the way. And we've got that covered too. Let us show you the systems and frameworks that we teach growth-minded individuals to help them step into their sharp edges, execute on their passion journeys, and get predictable results time and time again. Go to passionstruck.com slash coaching right now, and let's get igniting. I don't even know if you, you were aware of this about my background, but I was stationed in Rota and I was um, formation warfare officer back in the day. They called us cryptologists but I was what they call a direct support officer. And so, which I love because I, I got to go on subs, aircraft, aircraft carriers, destroyers, cruisers, but about halfway through that tour, the heads uh, at NSA wanted to start a new practice. They now call it the Information Dominance Expeditionary Forces. And so I got assigned to Naval Special Warfare Unit 10 in Rota for 18 months. And so I, I guess I can tackle this because I saw a big difference. You know, I got to work not only with the, the Navy SEALs, but some French Foreign Legion, lots of the Spanish and Italian Special Forces, because Worker Unit 10 is kind of a training command. But what I saw that was different is kind of what you're getting on is in, in these small teams, everyone has a role and they know what their role is. And there's no question about it. And that was something that I saw is different than when I was on ships or somewhere else was just not only that, the, but the camaraderie that each of the teams had with each other and the trust and familiarity that they would have with each other. And so when I, you know, went on a few deployments with some of the teams in a, in a Green Beret unit, it was a completely, it was more disciplined in some ways, but also more loose in others in the bonds that you felt for each other. There was less of a separation between officer and enlisted, I found, and it was more, you know, co-equals on a mission, so to speak. So I would agree with that. Yep. Um, so for those uh, who aren't aware of your background, you spent, um, 10 or 11 years as a SEAL, and then you happened to, to get selected to go to MIT to pursue an ocean engineering degree. And I think it was at that point that you met Bill Shepard, who was first astronaut, who was a Navy SEAL. But, you know, I think we both know uh, Captain Wendy Lawrence, another um, Naval Academy graduate and astronaut. And you two took very different paths. When I interviewed her, you know, she came up in the Apollo days. And, you know, the day that she saw the landing on the moon for her, it kind of on launch, it launched this passion for the rest of her life that she wanted to be an astronaut. Similar kind of to both our experiences in finding the Naval Academy, you didn't go into to this to be an astronaut. It kind of came midway through your career. And I think, you know, that is becoming more the norm in many people's careers where you start off in one direction and then you end up reinventing yourself. But for you, what was the force that that kind of carried you from, you know, that decision, do I want to stay in and be a SEAL or do I want to pursue being an astronaut? You know, once I met Shep, Bill Shepard, and I kind of looked at his background and then, and then where, how mine was shaping up, I was in graduate school at the time and realized if he was able to be selected with the background that he has, then as a math major, you could do the correlation to that theorem. <laughs> is that that i would have the same qualifications and and maybe i would be a competitive applicant as well i also kind of put it in my own framework as if it doesn't happen it's fine because i really i liked what i was doing in the seal teams i i really enjoyed the seal community and had no super urgent need to leave it but i thought if the astronaut thing worked out then that'd be pretty darn 
cool and pretty amazing. And I would love to spend some time in my career working at NASA. You know, honestly, though, when I was applying, I, I didn't really know what the job involved. Like when, when you just see astronaut, you think of like spacewalks, you think of people sitting in a cockpit of a, of a spacecraft. But that's just only a very small fraction of the number of days. I mean, I've been an astronaut for 17 years and just a total accumulation of a year of that has been in space. So 16 years I've been doing non-space things. And, uh, but it's been, I've loved every bit of that as well, supporting other missions, leadership roles in, in, uh, here at the Johnson Space Center and, and various things, all been fun to be a part of. So I always feel grounded in my professional career in the SEAL teams, and that will never, ever be taken away. But I really enjoyed the second half of my career in NASA. Okay. So a question I always, personal question I always wanted to ask, you're, you were one of a few astronauts who's left who actually was able to go to space on a space shuttle and on a Suez capsule. And I, I wanted to understand what was the difference like in blasting off in both of those different vehicles? And, you know, for you, you, you know, what's that sensation like? And do you always get kind of nervous for it? Well, the, the physics is the same regardless of what vehicle you're riding. So the length of, of the powered flight is about eight, eight and a half to nine minutes in both cases. The G-force profile is the same, pretty much the same in both capsules. The, the difference is one that makes a lot of sense, and that's physical size. The Soyuz is, is a small capsule, three people squished in there, not a whole lot of room. The space shuttle much larger cockpit. You're comfortably seating in chairs. There's seven of you and you're not so squished and you're carrying lots of cargo in the, uh, in the cockpit as well as in the payload bay. And the other difference is not so intuitive, but that's in language. I mean, when I say it, you probably get it, but, but the, on the Soyuz, all the checklists are in Russian. The people talking on, on the radio it's all in Russian. The cockpit communication amongst the three of us are in, is in Russian. Displays the whole nine yards. And on the shuttle, and, and that's our, your second language. And, and for me, I, you know, I'm okay at it, but it's still you know, it's another level of effort to do the translation and then make sure you're doing the right action. In the, in the shuttle, everything's in English. You're talking in English. It's your native tongue. So you don't have that extra layer of mental... Uh, gymnastics that you're trying to do on top of it. So in that respect, I, I thought that it was it was more challenging to fly in the Soyuz, but I also didn't have as prime of a role in the Soyuz uh, as my two cosmonaut crewmates. So I had some tact. I knew them right. in an independent of the language. Yeah. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner, we at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities from scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates. It's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to Passion Struck. So when you were up on the space station this time, it was historic for a couple of reasons, and I want to tackle each one of them separately. I'm going to get to COVID in a second, but when you were the commander of 
of the ex expedition. SpaceX did a very monumental flight that I knew you were looking forward to. But what some people who might be listening don't understand is that that is because one of the other astronauts who was on that SpaceX flight was actually a crewmate of yours on, I think, both your initial flight uh, on the space shuttle, if I'm not, am I correct? Uh, yeah, so D Doug Hurley and I were, were space shuttle crewmates on our both on our first mission, each of our first missions. And then his wife, uh, he's married to a NASA astronaut, Karen Nyberg. She was my crewmate on my second mission to the space station. So, so yeah, very inter our space careers are inter interwoven. So for those of us who are observing the space program and its you know evolution now, what what is the significance? You've seen this being the chief astronaut. You've seen it being an astronaut. What was the significance of? of that flight and that docking situation for you and, and seeing where the space program can go in the future. Yeah. So in, in 2011, the, the space shuttle flew its final flight. And since then, so essentially for nine or 10 years, we have been in this situation where we've been 100% reliant on our Russian colleagues to get astronauts to space. So we, NASA and the United States of America has to pay for each flight, and it, the price is significant. It's I think it's now about eighty million per person. Paying that to to our to the Russians uh, for launch services. Now, since SpaceX is online and soon Boeing, we can kind of wean off of that. We're not hundred percent out of out of it. In fact, I think uh, in a couple weeks, not I think I know in a couple weeks, uh, another astronaut, Mark Van High, is going to launch on a on a Russian. Uh, Soyuz. He may be the last one, but we'll, we'll see. But but anyways, nonetheless, we now have the capability to launch our people from Florida again on, on a U.S. rocket. And folks might not realize this, but SpaceX and NASA, when we were in the early agreements on trying to figure out how the, their vehicle would be operated, they think of it like a, a rental car versus a taxi. And if you take a taxi the, the company provides the, the driver of the vehicle. If you take a rental car, you are the driver of the vehicle. And it's more of the rental car model for, for SpaceX. So SpaceX provides the, the capsule to the government, but the government provides the operators of the, of the vehicle. So in this case, Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley were active NASA astronauts. They were the test pilots of, of the this first SpaceX flight. So with this now in place, how, where do you see the evolution of spaceflight now going? Like how, how long until you think we'll be capable of going to the moon and then Mars? Um, did this being successful short circuit that significantly? Yeah, people always ask me like, is, is there a competition now between commercial companies like SpaceX and NASA? And absolutely not. It really working hand in hand with SpaceX success that allows really commercial companies to do more of the low earth orbit kind of operations and then uh, therefore nasa can focus its energy money and budget manpower on getting to mars and 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 even sooner than that getting back to the moon and having a, a lunar gateway where so all of that is happening now we there was some thought that we do that in 2024 that's not going to happen uh, it's too soon to the moon and the economics of covid definitely makes that even more of a challenge so so sometime in the 2020s is when we should be on the moon lunar surface and then i would say it's probably like mid 2030s or late 2030s when we have the ability to get to the mars surface of mars just around the corner just around the in corner many, in many ways um, so when you were about ready to go up last time, one of the concepts I brought up to you was this thing that many astronauts experience called the overview effect that people have been talking about now for a few decades, where you kind of see the big picture when you're up there and can put that into perspective because of your height. Um, what I wanted to ask, though, is this time going up, you know, you launched right at the beginning of covid and you were seeing a, a drastically different planet. I, I thought it was pretty interesting because you had the Apollo 11 anniversary that happened, but it, it was kind of the reverse. You know, we were looking at them experiencing something amazing on the moon, 
whereas you're up in space looking down on an alien planet in many ways because of what was happening. And I was wondering, did this trip have a different significance for you than the previous ones? It did, and, and there are several reasons why this one was more significant. COVID is, is an obvious one. I mean, I launched, uh, I, I left Houston in, at the end of February. My wife and I hopped on a, a flight to Moscow. She came with, because we, we spend about six weeks, the six weeks prior to launch in, in Moscow, or, or not in Houston. And COVID, if you remember, was, was just starting to kind of uh, make its way to the United States in that late February timeframe. We arrived, we did a normal airport process and no effect, but very soon after that, all the flights started closing down and, and, and routing back home was an issue. And, I, and my wife wasn't sure if she would make it back if she stayed for the launch. And, and my launch guests, family, close family and, and our family and close friends weren't sure if they were going to come, be able to come to Kazakhstan. Within weeks, all that went away. She left. And, uh, and so I, I left the planet really as COVID was raging, starting to rage. And uh, on the, the bus ride to the launch pad, it was just, a, you know, like with a technician and the crew and the bus driver at the launch pad, there was hardly anybody there. Very, very different type launch experience. But also, so that's the COVID part. But also, I had a different mindset independent of COVID, and that was this, it's my third mission, could very likely be my last mission. And so I had a viewpoint more of soaking it all in and savoring the experience, because the other previous two missions, I knew that, or I had no intention of being done. I knew I wanted to fly more. And uh, at this point in my career, you know, it's like, hey, it could be my last space flight. It could be my last space walk. Every, every, so take advantage and cherish and, and embed these moments in my memory. So that was the, the bigger difference why this mission was, was different. So in your 17 years now, what, what has, if you could highlight the single most memorable moment that you had as being an astronaut, what would it be? Probably the moment the hatch opened on my first spacewalk riding the rocket on your first time is amazing but there's nothing that you i can't even put words to effect when when you open the door and just your glass visor and and you're looking down at earth below you and uh and you're outside and you know that there's been a great deal of effort to get you to this point and and you're part of a team that's repairing something or installing something new but yet you're in this crazy, crazy location that it doesn't make any sense to your brain. Like, why are you there? This is not the place you should be. So that first moment of your first spacewalk. Wow, and you have had some very interesting spacewalks. Um, I remember one, in fact, where the person that you were doing it with had water, if I remember correctly, um, emerge in his helmet. What, when you're faced with something like that, is that when your instincts from buds and being a seal and other things came into play or are these things that you were trained for yeah i mean everything no matter what you're doing it reverts back to training and if you're experiencing something for the first time you're uh you'll be slower to react and just think about like putting a bicycle together for your kid on new on christmas eve if you've got to do three of them the first yep. bicycle takes you three times as long. By the second and third bicycle, you can crank, crank it out. And the same thing is true for training for space. That's why we train over and over and over for space blocks in the pool. We train over and over and over for malfunctions in the cockpit with the simulators. And, uh, and when that, that particular EVA happened, I, I, like, I can't remember the actions that I did to get the hatch closed. It just, my hands just did it. And it's so weird, even right now, I'm trying to think, how did I get the hatch? How did I move Luca out of the way? How did I swing the hatch closed? How did I get the hatch to be sealed without anything fouled in the seals? I can't remember. It just happened. And it happened because of iteration training. And uh, it was just rote memorization. And maybe part of it, too, is at that point, I, I like to think of it like my whole career of preparation enabled me to respond quickly and efficiently and do it, do it right. And that's the value of training. 
Well, it's interesting because uh, when you talked to me about uh, your your mission to Afghanistan and, and I asked you about what was it like being in that situation, you gave the same answer. You said, I was there to do the mission right and I just relied on my training and it carried me through a successful completion of the mission. So it's very similar. So I guess what where I was leading this, so the qualities of being a successful SEAL, a successful astronaut are probably very similar to being a successful entrepreneur or leader if you're not even in one of those professions. And if there were one or two qualities you would say are the most important, what would you tell the listener? Yeah, that that's a good question. That And it all boils back down to this concept of crew and team. Every member of your organization has value to add. They're, they're there for that reason. And, to, and there's, there's certainly times when a time-critical decision needs to be made and, and someone, the leader, needs to just execute the 80% plan now. And there's other times where consensus and make the 80% plan into a 93% plan. But knowing when to do that and but just inherently understanding that every member of the organization has value to add and listen and incorporate because you never know who's going to have the best idea on any given day. And that's true in the SEAL teams. It's true in the cockpit of a spacecraft and it's true in the boardroom or your office place. And you have had a lot of success throughout your career, but do you think you would have had that success had you not faced adversity? Or do you think it's the adversity that helped define where you are today? I think as you go through adversity, it makes you more prepared for the next thing that, you, that you're going to encounter in life. Each building, each brick that's laid in, in who you are makes you more, your foundation more stable for the next thing. So I don't know... To answer that, if adversity makes me uh, capable or it just makes me more able to handle the next thing, I'd have to, probably the latter, probably the latter. I think of it as building blocks on the foundation to make you more uh, robust to the next thing, failure. Okay. And going back to your time in space, one of the questions that I, I forgot to ask was, is there any type of crew rest standard? And if there is, do you actually get it? Yeah, we, our lives on the space station are driven by this daily calendar. And every day there's, you know, absolutely, you always have an eight-hour sleep block in there. And our culture is that you, you don't mess around with it. I mean, there, there are certainly some nights where you, you stay up a little bit longer because you got some special project uh, that you must get done for tomorrow. But by and large... We take very seriously the, the concept of being well-rested and have, having some gas in the tank for the next time you've got to surge. Because if you're right at red lines all the time, you have no margin in your hip pocket to surge when you need to. So we're very strict about, about sleep. And on, on Sunday is an unscheduled day. Like you, you just take Sundays in space and, and do whatever you want and uh, call home, call friends and just chill out. That's great. Um, so we're, we're nearing the end and I've got a rapid round of questions for you here in a second, but I, I did want to ask, you know, for the listener out there who's bored and what they're doing, broken, battered, they're the, feel like they're an underdog in their life and they can't achieve the success that you have done in yours. What are three things that you would tell them that you credit are things that helped you get to where you are today and things that they could impact in their own life? Well, I feel like I'm doing things each day that I like doing. That's one thing. I think I'm a person that, that likes organization and structure. Like I like to have a, a, a thing that I'm working towards. If it's physical fitness, I like to have a race or an event that kind of has keeps me focused. I noticed that I'm, in fact, right now, I, I don't have anything fitness-wise that's on my horizon, and it's a little unsettling that I don't have a routine in fitness just because we, we've done a few trips lately and, and haven't gotten back into the, the groove of it. So, so it's daily routine, fitness, and doing something that you like to do. Those are probably the three things that keep me most focused when I have those things in my life. Okay, great. Well, are you ready for a rapid round of questions? Okay, let's do it. Okay. So the first one is, 
true or false, is beef yakisoba with a cannon bar run your traditional pre-launch meal? <laughs> false. <laughs> um, if you could meet anyone alive or dead, who would it be and why? Maybe JFK, because I feel like my career in the SEAL teams uh, is tied to him since it was his vision that, that sort of established the SEAL teams and his vision for space exploration is keeping me employed right now. Okay. And on those lines, did anyone try and ever discourage you from becoming an astronaut? No. Okay. If you were to colonize a new planet, such as Mars, and you could establish one law, having been an astronaut now for as long as you've been, what would it be? People that are buttholes go back to Earth. Okay. And on those same lines, what do you consider as your kryptonite? Letting down the people that I care about and love. Okay. Uh, working backwards, is there something that you learned from being a SEAL and now astronaut that you wish you would have known when you were a mid or junior officer? That uh, SEALs and astronauts are no different than mids or junior officers. We just are in different stages of life. I mean, by that, I mean, everybody's a person. Everybody puts their pants on every morning, whether you're a four-star admiral or a seaman recruit. Okay, great answer. And if you could win any award, what would it be and why? I would win the Passion Struck Podcast of the Year. <laughs> I you have may, no you idea. May, <laughs> you, may, you may be on to that one. Um, and <laughs> one. One final question. What took more perseverance, completing a day in Buds during Hell Week or completing the Iron Man? Why? A day in Buds during Hell Week. Yeah. The, the Iron Man. I loved the actual race, and I didn't think of that as a grind. The grind uh, for the Ironman was the six months of dedicated, hardcore training leading up to it. So the actual day of the race was like eating cake and ice cream. It was just fun, and the prize for doing a hard, hard job. The, a day in Hell Week is just hard, and there's no getting around it. And yeah. Yeah, well... The, the last episode that I released was actually about an Ironman triathlete named Cindy Hooper, who completed the Ironman Whistler three months after getting pancreatic cancer, Whipple surgery, and while still in the middle of going through chemotherapy and radiation. And um, it was wow. very, it wasn't your typical uh, in any way run. She She's the first pancreatic cancer survivor or person who's been on chemotherapy to ever complete one, but it, it's a really good emotional, good feeling story if you have time. Um, oh, listen. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know you're extremely busy and I really appreciate your time today and the amazing career that you've had and representing you know, all of us who are your classmates at the Naval Academy so well. Thank you. Thanks, thank you John. so much. You bet. My pleasure. It's been great to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much spending time with me today on this special episode of the Passion Struck Podcast. And Chris, thank you so much for taking your time to share your passion journey with us here today. And I hope you got as much out of that episode as I did. Wow, was there a lot to unpack from what it took inside to get through initially the Naval Academy Prep School and the Naval Academy, to going through BUDS and becoming a SEAL, to facing combat and then becoming an astronaut and all the tips and lessons that he provided all along the way. A heartfelt thanks to all of you for continuing to support, watch, and listen to this podcast, where our aspiration is to make passion go viral. Until next time, thank you, and keep on igniting your potential. Thank you so much for joining us. The purpose of our show is to make passion go viral. And we do that by sharing with you the knowledge and skills that you need to unlock your hidden potential. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to the Passion Struck Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts at. And if you absolutely love this episode, we'd appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes and you sharing it with three of your most growth-minded friends so they can post it as well to their social accounts and help us grow our Passion Struck community. If you'd like to learn more about the show, and our mission, you can go to passionstruck.com where you can sign up for our, our newsletter, look at our tools, and also download the show notes for today's episode. Additionally, you can listen to us every Tuesday and Friday for even more inspiring content. 
And remember, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thank you again for joining us. 